Good morning, First Baptist Church of Gray Gables. I hope you've all had a wonderful week, though I bet it's been uh, a stressful week. Uh, but let me just remind you that Jesus is on the throne. He has uh, not ceased to be on the throne. He will always be on the throne forever and ever and ever and ever. And in that we say, hallelujah, thank you, Lord, and we trust him. And so I hope uh, in light of everything that's going on in our nation, you're still finding joy, you're still finding hope in Christ, and you are still encouraged unto uh, the gospel in his kingdom. We are uh, starting the second of four topical sermons uh, on church polity this morning. We thought as our national government's going haywire, we might as well look uh, down to our church government and make sure we're not going haywire. So again, this is very unusual for us, as we've noted. I want to emphasize that. Uh, We almost always have sermons that are expositional in the sense that we look at one passage of Scripture and see what the Lord would have uh, for us to hear from that passage of Scripture. But for just a brief time this month, we're going to have some special teaching on this particular topic. It'll still be biblical, we trust, uh, but it just won't be on one passage of Scripture. We'll be looking all throughout the Bible. Uh, And so this morning, we'll continue to look at what the Bible teaches us on this topic. We began last week about church government or church structure. We started at deacons, now we move on to elders. Uh, I confess that this may be seeming like an obscure topic or an even odd topic, but it's one I, um, I, I believe that many other churches would benefit from having a better understanding of. And so, uh, before we go and examine the next group of elders, let's go to the Lord and ask for his blessing uh, in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you um, that your word is sufficient for us to to know and understand how we are to align our churches, how we are to organize our churches. Um, Father, we just pray for wisdom, especially on this particular topic where It seems like it's the most different from what we practice. We just pray for much grace, much humility as we engage in conversations about this, as we seek to honor you and bring glory to Christ through the proclamation of his gospel. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, the next group we're examining is the group of elders. And if that term seems kind of weird to you, we're going to unpack it and explain it a little bit more throughout the sermon uh, by, by looking at how it relates to some of the other offices. Uh, but essentially, when we talk about elders, what we mean is pastors. It's a, a word that's used interchangeably with pastor, with bishop, with overseer, uh, shepherd, elders, Uh, are just that. And so I want to look at this under a couple of headings and examine where we're at at a church and where uh, the Lord has laid on your pastor's heart uh, where we need to go. And so first and foremost, I want us to understand this, that the elders of a local church throughout the Bible are to be plural. We see this all throughout the text of Scripture, that uh, rarely do you see a singular pastor at a local church. In fact, hardly at all. Uh, Every single time in the New Testament when the elders of a local church are mentioned, when the pastors of a local church are mentioned, they are in the plural. And though it never suggests a particular number for a particular congregation, I can give you tons of examples. In fact, if you would look on uh, This Week at Gray Gables on your notes, you have scripture references there in your outline that I would just encourage you uh, to read. Acts 16.4, Acts 20.17, 21.18, Titus 1.5, James 5.14. Those are just a few places. 
And I, and I have to tell you, my experience uh, attests to the usefulness of having more elders in a local church than simply a singular pastor. Let me just paint this scenario for you because this is often what happens in our Baptist churches today. We, we are interested in a candidate. We get his resume. He comes, he preaches his best sermon, and then he gives us his model for ministry, whether or not that actually even fits us as a church. They, they, we, we, we fall in line with his model of ministry. So he's going to hire staff mem- members, other paid staff members under his model of ministry. The church will be aligned toward his model of ministry. And then uh, over a period of time, as we've seen, uh, either something happens or he steps away, he gets called to another position, or the church's understanding of his model and his model aren't meshing. And so this pastor leaves and then there's no one there to lead the church church. And so what happens is we call another pastor with a different model of ministry and and he hires different staff under his model of ministry. And and something has to help break that cycle because it, it tends to lean us toward putting our hope in a singular, particular man and his model of ministry instead of us as a church taking hold of what God has laid on our hearts and how he's directed us and molded us into bringing honor and glory to Christ through his local church. And so I I, I think it's wise and biblical, and I want you to hear this because this is what's kind of different from what we experience. I think it's wise and biblical to raise up elders from people who are rooted in our congregation. We've experienced this a lot at Gray Gables, me being one of the pastors that's been raised up here. But oftentimes when we raise up pastors, we raise them up and then we send them away. But I think it's, it's wise for us as a congregation to begin urgently praying about raising up men in this congregation to serve us in the office of elders, men who are rooted in this congregation. Listen to me, church. This is my heart. I'm praying. I'm praying earnestly that even now God would begin to raise up within this body of believers elders to help serve alongside the two elders we already have in Pastor Justin and myself. Now, I'm going to explain a little bit more about the desired function of elder later. But the question comes before us, as it did with deacons, who then should be an elder? What then should the qualifications be for someone who is an elder? Well, that's where we move to the qualifications of eldership. And the qualifications, again, are clearly laid out by the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Hopefully you've got your Bibles turned there already. But I want to read together that list that starts with verse 1. Before we read, remember Paul is is using the word bishop or uh, the, the word is episkopos, which is translated bishop or overseer. And it is used interchangeably with the word elder. Let's read together 1 Timothy chapter 3 verses 1 through 7. The Uh, precious word of God says this. This is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetousness, or not covetous, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest uh, being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. 
Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. D.A. Carson noted that this list of characteristics is most notable for not being very notable. Uh, that is really, when we look at the seven verses, there's not much different than, than everything that a Christian should be, right? This list is enjoined with, with all Christians on the New Testament. All Christians are to be marked by these particular things, with one exception, what we see being able to teach. That is uniquely said of those who would serve us as elder there in verse 2. Now, look, while I think that the scriptures are sufficient here, I do not think that Paul would claim that this list is exhaustive when he's writing to Timothy. There was a particular problem that Timothy was facing with false teachers at the church of Ephesus. And and Paul was writing some particular things to distinguish the true teachers from the false teachers who it looks like were teaching in the name of the church. So what's interesting is that I've met, as I've meditated on this particular list here that Paul gives, and it's very similar to the list he gives in Titus chapter 1, uh, that these are not all the Christian virtues uh, that a Christian should exhibit. There are a lot of other virtues that we as Christians should have, but these are all the virtues that would be recognized as virtues by the surrounding culture of the time. It's very interesting. In that sense, you might refer to these as what we would call public virtues. They are virtues that if a person has them, it commends the gospel. It makes the gospel attractive to outsiders. And so regular Bible reading is good and prayer is certainly necessary. But did you notice that Paul doesn't mention either one of those here? Now, I would Definitely never consider someone uh, suggesting that we recognize someone to serve us as elder in this church who doesn't read their Bible regularly or, or pray privately and regularly. But Paul doesn't mention it here. See, it's not the purpose for which he is writing Timothy. It's not to give an exhaustive list. I am taught that Christians are supposed to commune with God regularly and privately, that they're supposed to give themselves to know his word, but it's not mentioned here. But Paul's purpose is to mention those things that would be known by those around him, like paying the bills on time, being cheerful or humble and helpful, things that even pagans would recognize as good. Because, brothers and sisters, one of the reasons of having leadership is to commend the gospel to those outside the church so that those who we recognize as Christian elders in the church represent the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ well. Now, listen to me. This doesn't mean that we simply need to follow the world's standards in picking our leaders. We shouldn't imitate those churches in our country who simply find their community leaders who just so happen to be in their congregation and make them the leaders of their congregation. That kind of worldly mindedness, it's, it's extremely unhelpful and, and not beneficial at all in the church. Instead of this, we are to search for those of character, reputation, Ability to handle the word, word and, a, and a kind of fruitfulness that marks their lives. This is to be typical of those who serve us in the office of elder. 
The character of these church leaders is to be built not for themselves, but to be built for others. Thus, they are not to be lovers of money, but hospitable. The word there is xenophilo, by the way, for hospitable. It actually is not the best translation for hospitable. It means lover of strangers, people who aren't natively from here. I may not have anything in common with them, but I love them and invite them into my home because God has done this for me in Christ. That's to be typical among those who serve as elders. True church leaders, as Paul is writing about here, are to be marked by being others-centered. That is crucial. Now, much like we did with deacons, now that we've looked at the qualifications of elders and a, a brief qualification of elders, I want us to briefly also look at the historical overview of the office of elder before we kind of differentiate between some of the things that we experience in the local church. And so let's look at a historical overview. All churches everywhere have had individuals serve them function in the office of elders, even if they call them by other names. The most two New Testament common names are episkopos, uh, overseer, or presbyteros, uh, elder. But now, I know today, when many evangelicals hear the word elder, they probably immediately think of Presbyterian. Uh, Yet, the first congregationalists in the 16th century, history tells us, had elders. And while it's historically accurate to associate elders with Presbyterians, it's not Uh, it's not accurate to associate them exclusively with Presbyterians. Nor is it true to think that the term is foreign to us as Baptists, that we've never, ever used this term in the history of Baptists. Elders could be found in Baptist churches in America all throughout the 18th and 19th centuries. We were still using this term. W.B. Johnson, the first president of the Southern Baptist Convention, he wrote a book on church life in which he strongly advocated a plurality of elders in each local church. Now, why didn't this happen more in Baptist churches, then what happened to us that we became more single pastor, single personality led? Well, I don't know whether it was just inattention to scripture or the pressures of life on the frontier when churches were popping up left and right at an amazing rate by the grace of God. But the practice of cultivating such leadership began to decline. However, Baptist papers continued always to talk about having elders in the church. They continued to call for uh, it being revived where churches had laid it aside. Even as late as the early 20th century, you were seeing Baptist reports reporting their pastors as being elder so-and-so. Though this practice, yes, it is unusual. We're used to the term pastor, and really the term pastor is accurate and okay. There is certainly now a growing trend back to this, and it's for good reason. Uh, The office of elder The plurality of elders, it was needed in the time of the New Testament church, and it is needed today. And so, okay, we've talked a lot about it. We've talked about the qualifications. We've talked about their need for the plurality. We've talked about a historical overview. But what is it? Let me help you define what we mean by elder. And the way I want to help define that is first distinguishing them from the office of deacons. And I think you might find that helpful. And then I will distinguish the relationship between the teaching pastor, the main preaching pastor, and what the other elders would serve, okay? So first, let's look at the difference between all elders, or between, uh, between the elders and the deacons, between those who serve us in the office 
of elder and those who serve us in the office of deacon. What is the difference if there is any at all? Well, there's been a, a huge miscommunication in many that I've heard that, to think that these two things are basically the same. Uh, and they're not. They're very different. We've talked about this a little bit, but let me hit it on the head. Uh, many of us confuse the role of elder with the role of deacon. The concerns of deacon in the New Testament, as we've seen, are the practical details of church life. Maintenance and the care of church members with physical needs. All remember last week in order to promote the unity of the church and the ministry of the word. Now, I will grant you here in 1 Timothy chapter 3... What's most noticeable when you look over all of these qualifications as an elder uh, and deacons are the fact that they are very, very similar. So many of those qualities are the same. Both overseers, elders, and deacons need to be reputable, blameless, trusted, monogamous, sober, temperate, generous men. Indeed, so similar are, are the list of these two traits of, of men that, that uh, the striking thing is that with two lists so similar, they should be clearly distinct offices as they were. That is because the difference comes not so much in the nature of the person that is holding the office but in what they are doing while holding that office. How they are particularly serving the church. So Paul and these early Christians clearly recognized two separate bodies serving the church. In Acts 6, we have, we have seen something of the root of the distinction between the elders and the roles and responsibilities to that that they had of the deacons. In fact, go ahead and turn back to Acts chapter 6 with me. We looked at that uh, last week as we studied the, the office and role of deacons, but I want to examine that again with you, just so we can be clear. In Acts chapter 6, verse 2, after complaining uh, that had begun in the church of Jerusalem, look at what we read in verse 2 of Acts chapter 6. The Bible says this, then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, it is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business as we continue to give ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Well, from that, I'm reading even just verses two and three, I think we could say, that the ministry of the word of God is central to the responsibility of the elders. And brothers and sisters in Christ, this is not only central to this office, the ministry of the word of God is absolutely central to God's church. Let me say this with emphasis. The most important thing in any church you ever attend, and certainly the most important thing in any church you would ever join, is the ministry of the word. It's why, by the way, we pledge in our church covenant that as soon as we depart from this place, we will unite with another church where we can carry out these principles we find in God's word. We understand that God's word is absolutely central to the church and it is central to that of the elders. Uh, you look down in Acts 4, again, uh, Acts 6, 4, and it's mentioned again. We find them resolving in that verse in this way. He says, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and the ministry of the word. That is, they would literally be deacons of the word. This fits with what we read as we read through the book of Acts. 
we, we, we see them in the qualifications of elders in 1 Timothy 3, that they must be able to teach. And it seems that the role of elders is fundamentally to lead God's people by teaching God's word. This teaching must be by the public handling of the word of God, be it with groups large or groups small, uh, being known by individuals in the church to be able to explain and to apply God's word. So those who would serve us as elders need to be exemplary in their lives as well. They need to show even by living that they actually understand what they're saying in the word of God. So summing this up, um, this point that the elder's authority is then related to his task of teaching. He is to be a pastor, the shepherd, the under-shepherd, as Jesus is the great shepherd. We who are elders are to serve as overseers. In Acts 6, here the elders figured out how to solve this particular problem. They proposed it to the assembly. We see later in 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul refers to the elders as those who rule or direct the affairs of the church, laboring in word, laboring in doctrine. But chiefly, it seems that the elders' role is one of leading by patiently and carefully teaching God's word. It would be great benefit of many churches to distinguish that from the role of elder uh, from that of a deacon. Now, does it mean that deacons can't also teach the word of God? No, not in any way, shape, or form. But elders, deacons, their primarily deacon's service is to serve the physical needs of the people to promote the unity of the church to the ministry of the word. The elders' primary focus in their service to the church is to be the ministers and proclaimers of the word. Okay, I want to deal with another question you're probably thinking. Okay, what does this mean for you, Pastor Cody? If we're trying to raise up uh, many men here that would be able to teach and minister God's word to lead us and rule over the direct affairs of the church, what does that mean for you? Is there any distinction between the role as the senior pastor and any other elders the Lord may bring along? What's the distinction between the elders and the preaching pastor? Well, if you ask the question, does the Bible teach that there is to be a senior pastor alongside or even inside the eldership, I think that the question really to that from the Bible is no, not directly. It doesn't seem that that has to be the case. But let me stop you there. Having said that, I do think that when you read the New Testament, you can discern that there's a distinct role among the elders for one who would be the primary public teacher, teacher of the church. See, the word pastor really only appears one time, at least in the New King James Version. It's in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. It's paired with the word teacher as part of the gifts that God gives his church. Behind the English word pastor is a Greek word poimain, which is directly related to the word shepherd, which means a pastor is to be a shepherd. So you have the related word of uh, for shepherd appearing a few times in the New Testament, but in none of those examples is there a separate position from the elders indicated. In fact, all the elders are called pastors. With that being said, though, I, I do want 
to give you four glimpses, I think we see from the role of the New Testament of a preaching or teaching pastor. So I'm not saying that we are in sin here at First Baptist Church of Grey Gables for having a senior pastor position and, and our bylaws directing through the congregationally led senior pastor, pastor led church. But I, I think there are some changes that we can make to help fulfill this. And so I do want to show you, however, that there is a, there is some wiggle room for somebody serving as a primary teaching pastor in this way. And so I want to look at four glimpses we see from this role, the role that I serve in from the New Testament. First, even in the New Testament, there were some men who moved from place to place like Timothy and Titus who served as elders as they did it in a place where they weren't born or brought up. Timothy is an example of this. Timothy wasn't from Ephesus, but he moved to Ephesus and served as an elder in that place. That's opposed to those people who were appointed in every town, like Titus was preaching in Crete. When, uh, when Titus goes to Crete, Titus establishes a church, and most of the elders are going to be from that local place. But it seems there were times when someone would come from the outside and be placed there. Second, some of those were supported full-time by the flock. We, we know that from the New Testament, from 1 Timothy chapter 5 and Philippians Four. While others worked another job, we know Paul was a tent maker as he was establishing the gospel in particular places. You wouldn't think that Titus going and preaching in Crete and seeing these new churches in every little town he preaches in, you wouldn't think that all of those elders would immediately be able to be supported full time by the little church that would be there. So one, we do see at times people coming from different places elsewhere and starting churches and leading churches and serving in the office of pastor. And two, the idea that there were some who were fully supported so they could give themselves to the work. Third, uh, it's interesting to note that when Paul wrote to Timothy in this very letter we've been looking at, 1 Timothy, he writes to Timothy alone. He didn't write this to the elders at the church of Ephesus. He wrote to Timothy and don't worry, it doesn't mean that Timothy was alone in Ephesus because we know from the book of Acts that there were other elders at the Ephesian church. Yet Timothy seems to have a unique function among them. This fits then with the fourth thing. In the letters of Jesus to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3, they're all addressed to the messenger, singular, of each those seven churches. None of these are airtight arguments, by the way. They're not, uh, but they are descriptions that are consistent with the practice of setting at least one person aside or perhaps more than one person aside who is not necessarily from our own community, supporting them and giving them the primary teaching responsibility in the church. Listen, if you don't find those observations persuasive, uh, if you follow the New Testament examples, I, I certainly think we have the freedom to set aside men full time and, and support them for the teaching, to provide for them, and if necessary, bring in someone from somewhere else in order to serve us in this way. Such a one is a full-time pastor, whether it's the office of senior pastor or uh, the associate pastor, although I prefer teaching pastor. Uh, but we must, however, remember that the preacher, the pastor, is also fundamentally one of the elders of the congregation. Their service together has uh, immense benefits. And this is what I'm praying for. I'm praying for men to be raised up from this church that would serve us in a beneficial way of, of rounding out Justin and I's gifts 
Uh, maybe balancing some of our faults, making up for some of our defects, supplementing places where our judgment might not be perfect in areas, creating support in the congregation for some of the decisions that are made, leaving uh, us leaders less exposed to unjust criticism. Uh, it, it, what it does, though, is it makes leadership more permanent and rooted it allows for more continuity. So if someone as a paid staff member, as we've talked about, if someone were to leave, the majority of your leadership and eldership is still intact. And not only that, but I think one of the most, one of the greatest benefits about elder-led churches is that it encourages the church to take more responsibility of the growth of its members and it helps make them less dependent on their employees. And all of those things are good and they're right, as we'll see next week as we look at congregationalists. Well, okay, if that's the case, then what should be the relationship between the elders and the church? Let's look at this and help define what we mean here. I'm going to deal with this again more explicitly next week. But let me say that in general, the relationships between the elders and the congregation should be marked, I think, by evidences of, of godly character mutual dependence upon God. Uh, let me mention five characteristics of this relationship, and let me ask you who are members of our church to write down these five things and begin to pray about these things for us as a church, to pray about what to look for in men in the church who God might call us to serve in this particular way. First, recognition, clear recognition. The elders are to be recognized by the church as gifts from God for the good of the church. The church should therefore delegate them to the duties of leading and teaching the church. Those responsibilities are to be revoked only when it's clear that the elders are acting in a way that is contrary to the scriptures. So there is to be clear recognition for who is elders and who are part of our congregation as well. Number two, there's to be heartfelt trust. The church should trust, protect, respect, and honor an elder. I know that's such an interesting word, right? Especially when you have a, a young pastor to refer to him as elder. But remember, that's just a, that's just a word that means leader, overseer, bishop, pastor, shepherd. It's, it's all interchangeable with these. Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy five seventeen. He says, let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. So the elders should direct the affairs of the church and the church should submit to their leadership. That's why we read in Hebrews 13, verse 17, a verse again we'll look at more next week. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief for that would be unprofitable for you. So number two is trust. Number three is evident godliness, evident godliness. We've seen the emphasis in Paul's letter that he wrote to Timothy that the elders should be blameless. Paul says the same thing when he's writing to Titus. It doesn't mean that your elders should be sinless, but it means that this life has no evident ground for charges against him that will confuse people about what it means to be a Christian. The elder indeed then must be willing to have a life that is open to inspection, a home that is actively open to outsiders, given hospitality and folding others into their lives. Number four, we see carefulness, sincere carefulness. The elders 
should be marked by a use of their authority, which shows that they understand that the church belongs not to them, but the church belongs to Christ. Christ has purchased the church with his own blood, and therefore it should be cherished and treated carefully and gently, led faithfully and purely for the glory of God and the good of the church. The elders will give an account to Christ for their stewardship. Then finally, fifth, beneficial results. Beneficial results. I think as in a home or in our relationship with God, a humble recognition of rightful authority has benefits. In a church, when authority is used with the consent of the congregation for the good of the congregation, the church, the congregation, will actually be the ones who benefit as God builds up his church through the teacher he gives. Listen, Satan's lie that authority is never to be trusted because it's always tyrannical and oppressive, Satan's lie will be ousted by the practice and recognition of the elder's authority in the context of the congregation. I love this. Edward Griffin was a a wonderful, faithful Presbyterian, yes, pastor of a church in New Jersey. And when he preached his last sermon there, they'd already been preparing their next pastor. And in the close, he gave this brief exhortation to them. He intended it just for the pastor, but I'm going to share it with you as an encouragement for the way the congregation should treat those who serve them as elders. And not only that, but as, as, a, as a thank you for how this congregation has treated Pastor Justin and myself so well. Uh, let's look at what he says. He says this wonderful quote. He says, For your own sake and your children's sake, cherish and revere him you have chosen to be your pastor. Already he loves you and will soon love you as the bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. It will be equally your duty and your interest to make his labors as pleasant to him as possible. Do not demand too much. Do not require visits too frequent. Should he spend in this way half the time which some demand, he must wholly neglect his studies, if not sink early under the burden. Do not report to him all the unkind things which may be said against him, nor frequently in his presence allude to opposition if opposition should arise. Though he is a minister of Christ, consider that he has the feelings of a man. Well, it's in that soulful expectation in our ears that again brother Justin and I both want to thank you for your constant encouraging recognition of us and the respect that you give Uh, we hope we have been good stewards unto the Lord on your behalf Um, I know that there are many areas in which we fail but we are here to serve this office for the glory of the Lord and yet church I want you to hear really the, the the crux of this sermon is that we are praying that God would raise from this congregation, from this church, God would raise men to join us in this endeavor. Well, that's about it. Um, I pray you felt encouraged and instructed this morning about the nature of those who lead us in a local congregation. Uh, I want to say, along with Colossians 1, uh, we say this in Colossians 1, 28 and 29, it says this, Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. To this end, I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. I hope you have all seen this. It is a great privilege to serve in leadership and one that should not be missed. And of course, this is 
just 30 minutes of a conversation, probably 40 minutes of a conversation that we have on the Office of Elders. If you have any more questions or want more material on this, please ask me. I'd be happy to get you uh, your hands on some great books, some great biblical doctrinal books that will be encouraging to you and a couple articles as well. But I hope you see that it is a privilege to lead God's church in leadership. Uh, Some people may feel too busy or like such work is just not worth it. Friends, there are things a lot more important than wealth and fame that we can sometimes turn down without realizing the importance of what God is about. Paul says that being elder is a noble task. It is good to desire it. And and listen, if we've seen anything in our country, um, we know the whole nature of authority has been distorted. Uh, the, the possibility of realizing its abuse is, is taken to be good and healthy. And of course, I, I think there is some, some wisdom because we know that power, apart from God's goodness and purposes, is always demonic. But a suspicion of all authority, an innate distrust from everything, is also very bad. It reveals more of the person questioning than of the authority. And really, it shows a cancerous degeneration in the capacity which God has built us in order to have us operate in his image as loving children of him. To live as he meant for us to live, we have to be able to trust him and we have to be able to trust those made in his image that he puts over us in various ways of life. I know it's difficult, but everyone in the Bible from Adam and Eve to the rogue rulers in the book of Revelation show their evil fundamentally by denying God's authority and using it as if it were their own. To reject authority, as so many do in our day, it's short-sighted and it is self-destructive. I believe we're at a place in our society today, much because we have rejected and spurned even God-given authority, a world without authority. Friends, it would be like desires with no restraints, like a car with no controls, An intersection with no traffic lights, a game with no rules, a home with no parents, like a world without God. It could go on for a little while, but before long it would seem pointless and then cruel and then finally tragic. We probably wouldn't think all of this would come from discussion on church polity, but it does. Because at our heart, our exercise of leadership in the church relates to God's nature and character. Friends, when we exercise proper authority uh, through the law, around the family table, in our jobs, and the scout troop, and the little league, in our homes, and especially in our church, we are helping to display God's image among his creation. That is our call. That is our privilege. Lifting up Christ is the point of all of this. You and I, we are sinful and we are separated from him. God has loved us in Christ. He has given us salvation through Christ's death on the cross if we would only turn from our sins and trust in him. The life of elders in our church have been given in some part to proclaiming this message throughout the local congregation. They are pictures of the love of Christ and they are meant to point you to that same end. Christ is our Lord. Let's follow him in this example and let's thank God in in a world that's full with evil rulers that When we see a picture of godly authority in the church, that we not only thank God for it, but we begin to submit to it, and we begin to implement it and imitate it as well. Let's go to the Lord and pray together. Lord, by the coldness of our hearts, we confess that so often it seems like we don't care very much 
about whether or not people hear the good news of the gospel. We don't want to inconvenience ourselves. We don't want to take time out of our own lives. We don't want to serve others. Giving ourselves to preparation and teaching and teaching carefully, we don't, we don't want to do that. Lord, we would rather do things that come easier to our flesh. We confess this to you. Yet we confess thankfulness to you because you have still served us as you have through your people. You've put in this congregation to serve us faithfully through the years. You have given us good godly leadership um, throughout the many years, Lord, I've been here as a member and then as well as pastor. We recognize that as a gift from you and we thank you for them. Lord, I just pray that you would challenge us in our own hearts, that you would cause us to love you more and show that um, that we love you by loving the people around us more. And Father, I do pray as we begin to examine, Lord, the, the, the biblical need I think we have, according to your word, for, for men to be raised from among this church to serve us in the office of pastor and elders, not even serving us as full-time paid staff members, but just as leaders in the congregation who minister the word. Lord, I pray that you would Give us unity on this, that we would see the good in it, that we would benefit from it. And Father, we would, um, we would get more serious about the Scripture's sufficiency in showing us these congregational pastor-led, or these congregational um, elder-led matters. Father, that they are the way that you have designed your church to function. You are the way you have designed your church's structure. Would you help us align with that as we just think about and pray about these next steps as we consider these things, as we have even maybe some tough conversations, we just pray that all will be done in grace. and um, Lord, that you would align us in, in unity. We pray this all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Thank you, church family. I hope you all have a wonderful week. As always, I know this is probably really different than what you're used to hearing, but, but please reach out, ask any questions you may have. Let's have a conversation about this and let's think about some of the next steps we can take together. I want you please to tune in next week. Next week is also one of the more important uh, understandings of congregationalists, the fact that you are uh, charged to take hold of this church um, and, and the Lord is designed that way. Please tune in, we, uh, we pray, and we hope to see you soon. God bless you. I love you. Have a great day.